Welcome to the Discover Church Podcast. We are a Christian faith community based out of Denver, Colorado. Join us this week as we bring our uncertainties to an unchanging God. If you have any questions about the sermon, please feel free to send them in. You can email them to us at hello at discoverdenver.church. Right. Good evening. How are we doing tonight? Good. Hey, my name is Corey, as Preston said, and it is a privilege and honor to be with you tonight. You all have made it through Daylight Savings Time okay? Came out unscathed. That's the advantage of nighttime church. Arvada was sleepy this morning. Lots of people missed out on sleep. I, um, I had a debate with my daughter last night. You'll appreciate this. She's a little eight-year-old, and um, she has an alarm clock. How many of you still get up with an alarm clock versus your phone? Phew. Wow. Okay. Way to go. So um, we had this debate last night. She has an alarm clock, which she loves, and it said 8.30, and I said, you have to go to bed because it's 9.30. And um, she could not get that concept in, in her mind. She said, no, it's 8.30, and I don't have to go to bed yet. It's Saturday night. And we went back and forth, and I was trying to convince her that, you know, this is what daylight savings time is. And um, finally, it was clear I wasn't going to get through, so I just changed her clock to 9.30 and said, there, it's 9.30. Go to bed. <laughs> and I actually won the argument. So... Go figure, you know, parenting is about winning. Uh, I thought that was, tucked that one away, that's free. Yeah, that felt good, that felt good. Normally she doesn't go so quietly into the night. Usually it's an arm wrestling match, so I felt good about that. Well, I am so glad to be with you and to be here continuing the series um, that we've been in across all of our churches, the I Am series. For those of you who aren't familiar, we're in the Lent season. The Lent season is the 40 days um, leading up to the remembrance of Good Friday, where we remember Jesus dying on a cross, and then Easter, where we celebrate his resurrection. And in the early church, these 40 days were set aside for people who had just embraced faith. They had just embraced following Jesus, and they were preparing their hearts to get baptized on Easter, which is really a pretty exciting tradition. But the church saw that it was such a good tradition. There was so much uh, growth that came out of that season that they said, everyone, everyone who says that they're a follower of Jesus, wouldn't this be a great season where we spent 40 days looking upon the person of Jesus and, uh, and looking at him and, and wondering about him, particularly, specifically looking at his sufferings in a way that it prepares us to come to Easter and to really, truly celebrate together. And um, the best way that I've thought about this in layman's terms, it's kind of a spring cleaning of your soul. So uh, that, for some of you, that's really exciting. How many clean freaks are in here? Like my wife's like, yes, yeah, spring cleaning. I'm like, no, okay. So that's, tor- but for the rest of us, it's torture. That's like a horrible thought. How many of you have like, you're like giving something up or embracing something, like you're, you're doing something during the week to sort of be attuned to Lent? Anyone? Chocolate? You don't want to confess what it is? Pepsi? Soda? Okay. All right. Well, listen, there's still time. Actually, the church has traditionally practiced um, taking something away out of your life, whether that be the internet, the TV, uh, listening to music in the car, chocolate, soda, and then also adding a practice in a way that daily you're reminded of the season that you're in and, uh, and getting into touch Uh, with who Jesus is. And what I love about this series is that we're in the Gospel of John, and we're we're looking, um, John, by all accounts, was Jesus' best friend. 
Um, John himself brags a little bit, says he's the disciple that Jesus loved. <laughs> um, so he says, I was his best friend. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all write stories uh, about the life of Jesus, they tell it in a certain, um, not necessarily chronological, although it moves in that direction, but um, historically sort of this happened, then this happened, then this happened. John goes about organizing his gospel a little bit differently. Although he does that, he builds the entire gospel on seven I am statements and then seven major miracles. And throughout his gospel, he is screaming at the reader about who he thinks, after spending three years with Jesus, um, who Jesus is and who it is that Jesus said he is. And what I like about this series is uh, I'm sure your life is much like mine. When I'm sort of out and about, when I'm with neighbors, um, uh, not so much when I'm at work because I'm around staff people, but when you're at work, when I used to, to work out, there was, there's people who just, they talk about Jesus, right? And people have all kinds of opinions about Jesus. Everyone does. Um, whether they've studied the scripture or not, there's an opinion about Jesus. So Jesus was a good, uh, he was a good teacher, Okay, well, that's great. Um, Jesus was, he set a moral example for us and so on and so forth. And people have all kinds of opinions and people will often put words in Jesus' mouth. Well, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And people fill in the blank. What would Jesus say? And people fill in the blank. And what we wanna do in this series is we wanna let Jesus speak for himself. We wanna let him speak for himself. We wanna look at his words and what it is that he meant for the people that were around when he spoke those words. And today, the passage that Preston just read for us, uh, I don't know about you, but it's kind of a strange passage um, because we're talking about um, farmers and farm animals, effectively. So we're talking about how many of you like grew up on a farm or going to a farm? Like that's like your jam. This language is right up your alley. Yeah, a few of you, actually, which is really good. I, I, I grew up, my grandparents owned a dairy farm. And so we would go about once a month to the dairy farm and be there. My, my grandparents have since passed. My uncle took over that farm. And um, so I grew up every month going to the farm. And uh, my uncle to this day makes fun of me. He calls me a city slicker. Um, because when I show up, I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to smell funny. I don't want to get up at 4 a.m. to milk the cows. I don't want to wear boots. I know that's fashionable for you ladies. I don't like boots. Um, I don't like farm life. Typically, you either freeze all day or you sweat all day. That's what you do because you're out in the elements. And so my uncle calls me a city slicker, and he's always begging me to come to the farm so he can toughen me up a little bit, you know. Uh, you got to toughen the garris up is what he says. Um, but I don't mind being a city slicker. And if you're anything like me, you may come to a passage like this and go, um, I don't know much about shepherds and sheep, but it feels a little insulting that, he's, that I'm being referred to as a sheep. I don't know if you've been around farm animals, but they're not very bright. And the stereotype of sheep is that they smell and that they're stupid. That's the stereotype of sheep. And, um, and Jesus uses that, and it's, it's not so flattering, to be honest. But what's interesting is it doesn't quite fit our sort of 21st century mind, the way that we think if we didn't grow up on a farm. But what's interesting to note is that when researchers have gone back and look at art, that portrays the person of Jesus. In the first four centuries, the number one depicted um, artist portrayal of Jesus is of him as the good shepherd and the people of God as the sheep. 
which is really interesting. There was something about the first few hundred years, the first sort of five, six, eight generations after Jesus, that the early church, more than any other sort of understanding of who Jesus was, they embraced this thought that Jesus was the good shepherd. And it was the most represented uh, piece in, in the art world during that time, which is really, really interesting. So there's significance there, there's value there, that it's worth us sort of mining to see if there's value for us. And if you're confused at all, you go, I don't really understand sheep um, or shepherds. Well, you're in good company, maybe depending on how you look at that. At least the smartest guys of the day, the most studied guys of the day. In verse 6, after Jesus says, hey, I, I am the good shepherd, they respond, clicker, my clicker. Give me verse 6. There it is. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So even though Jesus said it, the Pharisees are confused. They're like, well, we don't understand what's going on. What's interesting is that many scholars think that this occurred probably within viewing distance of seeing shepherds on the hills, which is really, really interesting that Jesus did that. And so what I want to do in our time tonight is I just want to ask some simple questions that I would give you actually if you ever sit down to read your Bible, a couple basic questions would be, who is Jesus and what is he like? And then what is my response to that? Is he asking anything from me? And so we're just going to do it very simply like that together. And I want to start by asking, who is Jesus and what is he like? And I want him to speak for himself tonight. And so uh, you just heard Preston read it. And right out of the gate, when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, it dings a whole bunch of alarms for the religious leaders. Now, let me give you context. Here's another helpful freebie tonight. All meaning in life is context dependent. Tuck that away and think about that. Everything in your life, especially relationally, relationally, is context dependent. It's the same with the scriptures. When you read the scriptures, it's important to understand the context about what you're reading, or you'll often apply it wrong. And I'm sure you've seen a thousand examples of that. John 10, of course, comes after John chapter 9. What happened in John chapter 9? In John chapter 9, a blind man is healed. And this happened a lot around Jesus, but, but what is interesting and unique about this example is that Jesus heals a blind man. Number one, it's on the Sabbath. So it's offensive to the religious leaders because they saw healing as work on the Sabbath. Um, but number two, they actually engage the blind man, the former uh, blind man who now can see, and they have an interaction with him where he, he uh, goes back and forth with them. And they actually end up being the ones that kick him out of the temple. So this man who's gotten healed, he goes back and forth, says, surely this must be God. Who else could do something like this? And they go, what do you know? You were steeped in sin from birth. You got to get out. And it's at this point, they walk up to Jesus. And you imagine a scene where the religious leaders are walking up and now they've kicked the dude out. Have you ever seen a dude get kicked out of church? We should try. We should have set that up. I should have had Caleb like drag someone out of church like right now. It would be quite a scene, wouldn't it? People would be hushing and trying not to look, but looking. All kinds of stuff would have been happening. And people start moving towards Jesus. And so he has religious leaders in front of him. He now is starting to draw a crowd. And Jesus is confronted with, what do I do and say? Is this a fight that I want to take on? Or is this something I'm going to say, you know, you can think and believe what you want to do. Peace, I'm out of here. I'm going up on the mount, you know, kind of thing. But Jesus, in this moment, chooses to take it on, and he says the most troubling words that he could ever say to the religious leaders. He said, I am, and he filled in the blank. 
Now, you've probably talked about this in the last few weeks, so I'm not going to belabor it, but what is powerful and amazing about Jesus using the I am statement is that this was a statement that goes all the way back to Exodus 3. When God comes to Moses at the burning bush and says, I want to set my people free from Pharaoh and Egypt, and Moses has all kinds of objections, of which I know we would, we would never argue with God this way, but Moses was less holy than us, and so he argues with God, and he says, I wouldn't even know what to tell. Who would, who would I say sent me? There has to be a name. It has to be formal. It has to be on the invitation that I give Pharaoh. And God says, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And apparently when you're the God of the universe, you can just call yourself, you know, you just exist. That's what you are. And so that's what he tells Moses, which feels kind of funny to say, but he says, I am. And so especially a good religious leader and, and even a, a well-schooled Jew, they wouldn't use this phrase. You know, um, oftentimes God is referred to this terminology as, the, as Yahweh in the Old Testament, and they would not even write it. They would take letters out of it because the name was so holy and was so sacred. And so no one would use this. And Jesus starts his defense by saying, I am. And he fills in the blank, the good shepherd, and I am the gate. And you can imagine just the tops being blown off of the religious leaders. Like, are you kidding me? I mean, we were, we were arguing about, did you have the authority to heal? We were talking about um, a rule in the Sabbath. You know, can you heal? Is that work? We were in that argument about you, and you took the argument all, over, all the way over here. You escalated it. It's no longer about that. You're claiming, you're putting yourself on the same level as God. Jesus was saying he is exclusive. He said, I'm exclusive. I'm unique. You wonder why I can heal on the Sabbath? It's because I'm exclusive. I'm unique. Now, of course, we know that upset them because at the end of the passage that, that Preston read for us, some of the leaders who are standing there say what? They say, he is raving mad. He say, you, you are crazy. Who, who would stand there and say that you're God? But Jesus then, and I believe because now a crowd has started to form, Jesus goes one step further. And he says, not only am I, I am the good shepherd and I am the gate, but then he takes on the shepherd language. He says, I am the good shepherd. Now, why does that matter? Why it matters if you do a little bit of historical study is that the kings in, in the known sort of ancient Near Eastern world for several thousand years by the time of Jesus had been using the word shepherd to describe themselves. And so when we dig into ancient documents, we find um, like famous philosophers writing stuff like this. The care and supervision of tame animals is a schooling for the king. So little kings being raised up were actually supposed to take care of animals in dealing with his subjects. And therefore, kings are called shepherds for their people, not as a term of reproach, but the highest honor. Uh, because it, most shepherds were poor, so they're saying, no, it's actually the highest honor to be called a shepherd, in my opinion, based not on the opinions of the multitude, but on my own inquiry into the truth of the matters that the only perfect king is one who is skilled at the knowledge of shepherding, one who has been trained by management of the inferior creatures to manage to the superior. So train little boy princes who are going to grow up to be kings, train them with animals so that then they can be shepherd over people. That was, that was the philosophy. That was the prevailing thought. And then Jesus continued temporary, right after the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor, he was speaking to governors who he put in charge over provinces. You know, he didn't rule everything. They reported to him. Think Herod. He writes to one of these governors and he said, to the governors who recommended burdensome taxes for his provinces, I wrote an answer that it was the part of being a good shepherd to shear his flock, not skin it. And so Tiberius is trying to make himself look really good. 
So this guy who's actually a tyrant says, you, you, you know, we, don't, we only shear our flock uh, and, and not skin it, right? But what he's doing is giving credence to this idea that all the kings and the emperors, were, they, were seen, they were seen as shepherds. As a matter of fact, the um, Egyptian, the hieroglyphy that was used in early writings for the Egyptians, the shepherd's staff was used for the verb to rule or to rule over. And so not only does Jesus with the religious leaders sort of throw in their face the Old Testament and say, that thing that you won't talk about, that name that you won't say, I will give it to myself. But then he says to the crowds who stand around who know that all of the kings and the emperors around them, that these guys, especially Caesar, they were called shepherds. And Jesus says, and you know what? I am the good shepherd. And he doubles down on them. And Jesus gets really clear that he's exclusive. That he, he is the king and the king alone. Even though there's other living kings, Jesus says, I'm higher than them. I'm exclusive. I'm unique. And everyone standing around Jesus in that moment would have been presented with a choice. They would have been very present to saying, do I believe that that's true? Is this really truly the king of kings who stands before me? And the question for us tonight is, is he the king of kings of your life and of mine? Is he exclusively the leader of your life? You know, one of the ways that I figured out in my life that I know of Jesus is in charge, that if he is the king of kings, if he has exclusive rights for who he is and exclusive rights on my life, is have you ever been in a moment where you want something and you just have this sense, this conviction that you're not supposed to have it or you're not supposed to do that thing? And it's like your will and God's will are sort of coming together and they're, they're, they're starting to collide. Have you ever been in the moment where you've had to choose? Of course you have. Don't lie. You can sit there. Of course you have. All the time. We go, God, I, I, I really want this. This is the thing I want. And don't you know I've worked hard? Or this is the relationship I want? Or don't you think I should be able to do this with my money? Or I, I should be able to do this with my body? And you just have this sense, God saying, no, that's not right for you. It's not the right time or it's just not right for you. And you're in that moment. Some of you tonight are in that very moment with something in your life. You're in that moment where your will and the will of King Jesus are right up against each other, and he's saying, will I be exclusive in your life? Will I be exclusive? But he goes further, and he says, you know, anyone else that claims this exclusivity, they're just a fraud and an imitator. They have to crawl over the sheep stall. They, have to, they don't come through the front door. They don't come through the gate. They have to come over the walls. They're a fraud. It's an imitation. It's not going to give you what you want. Have any of you ever um, purchased something? You ever had something that's an imitation? Yeah, of course you have. I remember being in the fifth grade, uh, walking down the street in D.C. with my dad, and some guy literally in a trench coat walked up, opened his coat, and offered us watches in his coat. I got to believe that those were imitation. Those weren't real. Uh, I, I was just with um, my best childhood buddy growing up. I was in his house, and he has a photo of us at sixth grade graduation. Okay, big time. And, um, and we're together and he has us in his house and, and it just brought back a lot of memories. But we're standing next to each other and I am looking right. I mean, I've got gray slacks on. I have a bright pink shirt on, a couple buttons right here. I have bangs, bangs that go like this. It's like a half a can of hairspray, just holding the hair just right. And then the thing that caught my attention was I'm wearing a silver chain. I thought, 
the ladies love that chain. That's what I thought when I saw that. Ladies love that thing. That looked right. And, uh, and I was thinking about it. And the next thought that popped in my mind was that chain left green marks on my neck every night. It left green marks. So on the surface, in the photo, it looks good. If you would have saw me from 20 feet away, you would have went, man, that looks nice. That's dapper. But when you got close to me, you moved that thing around. It left green marks on my body that I would have to go home and wash every night so I could put it on the next day. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says there's imitations and they come for you and they come for your affections and they come for your life, but they leave marks, but they leave marks on your soul because they're just imitators and they want to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life. I love C.S. Lewis says this in a, in a, a beautiful way. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Or half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased, and I would add, with our imitations. And tonight, I would ask you to be honest with yourself. Are there imitations in your life that you've given your heart to? See, because here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus will compete for your affections, but he will not share you in the end. He will compete for you. He will pursue you, but he will not share you. He is exclusive and he is jealous and he wants all of you. And so if there's anything in your life tonight that you go, that's an imitation, that's a fraud, that's a little drink, a little sex, a little pleasure, uh, the bank account is so big, the, the vacations have to be like this, um, the, the food, the whatever it is, the thing, the video games, the thing that you go to numb out and not deal with the world, God would, I think, just invite you very tenderly tonight. Jesus would say, would you lay those down? You've got three weeks to Easter. Could, could you just, I'm not asking for everything, but I'm just asking you for three weeks. Will you lay down the imitation? Will you take off the silver chain? Will you just go naked? Will you just trust me that it's gonna be okay that you can find life in me because I am the only one, I'm the exclusive one. I can give you life and I long to do that for you. But Jesus is more than just um, like this emperor. I mean, all the emperors claimed exclusivity. Uh, they claimed to be unique. They claimed to be divine. But Jesus says, I tell you what, I'm not just sort of king of kings, but I'm also savior, I will pay for you. And he goes on to say, I will live sacrificially. Jesus is sacrificial on our behalf. Why does that matter? Where does that come from? He says, I'll give up my life. And, and one of the things that you, you might not know is that when Jesus says, I am the gate, for the longest time, this really stumped me. I got the good shepherd, I get that. I get sheep and shepherd, that makes sense to me. The gate, what, why? Why does John use the gate? I mean, like if I'm gonna write I am statements, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pack a punch, right? And I feel like I, I am the gate is like the weakest of all of them. I, I don't know, maybe that's a nerdy thing, <laughs> but I just go, I am the gate. That makes no sense, that's dumb. Um, but Jesus said it, so it's not dumb. So I can't say that, that's my problem. But I started to study it and to look at it and what I found is that in Jesus' time, um, I, I always imagine, like, I've never been to Ireland, but I imagine they have sheep stalls that are really nice. They're, like, built up with, like, beautiful marble. They're, you know, they're, like, three or four foot tall. I've seen photos of them. And it's a big square. But in Jesus' time, because shepherds were moving the sheep all over the hills, the shepherds had built for each other these stalls that didn't belong to any one shepherd. They all could use them, kind of first come, first serve. And the shepherds would get all their sheep in at night because they didn't want to have to watch them. They wanted to sleep. And then what would the shepherd do? 
the shepherd would lay down. It didn't have a gate. It had an opening. And the shepherd would lay down and sleep in the opening and effectively become a human gate for the sheep. And so the shepherd was saying, first of all, sheep, you're not going to get out. You belong to me. You're mine. But he was also saying, if anything's going to get in, it's got to come through me. If there's any wild beast prowling out there, it's got to come through me. Because I'm going to lay here and I am in between you and your enemy. And you can trust that I'm your shepherd and I will take care of you. And so when Jesus drops this bomb on them, he is saying something incredible. He's saying, yeah, I'm a high and lofty king, but I am someone who lays down in the gap and sacrifices for you. That's unheard of. It's unheard of. He says, you have an enemy for your, for your soul. And this is why he drops in in, in in verse 10. And he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, who is the thief in scripture? Over and over, the thief is Satan. And over and over in scripture, the thief is referred to as a roaring lion. And I believe that's why Jesus uses it right here, talking about sheep and shepherds and the protection of the shepherds is because he says, you have a roaring lion. You have a, a prowling beast that wants to devour you, that wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything about your life. But I lay in, I lay in the entryway and he will not enter. You belong to me and you are mine. And if I have to, I'll give my life on your behalf. And of course, he goes on to do that on Good Friday. And so listen, there's some of you here tonight that you're in a season because we all go through these seasons. So hear that. If you want to follow Jesus, it's not just rainbows and lollipops all the time. You will go through valleys. And sometimes when we go through valleys, we are tempted as our very first parents in Adam and Eve were to believe that God is not good. Right now, there's something that, you, that some of you have been asking God for, whether it be a, a partner in life, whether it be your bank account look a certain way, a car, a job, a relationship, whatever it is, you've been asking God a healing, a restoration of a relationship, and God is not giving it to you. And the thing that you're going to be tempted to do is to say that God doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't see me. Somehow I don't matter to him or I'm not most important to him or I'm not his favorite child in the house. And he just kind of, he doesn't see me. And you're going to be tempted to believe that. And at every moment that you're tempted to believe that, may you always remember that Jesus is your gate. That he laid down in the entryway for you. That he bled and that he died and that he took the best shot from your enemy right into his chest, right into his hands and into his feet. That you would never have to wonder whether or not God was for you. And so in this Lent season, it's good for us to have practices of gratitude and remembrance. To remember what it is that Jesus has done for us. And in my opinion, Jesus could have just stopped talking right there. That would be enough for me that he's exclusive, that he laid down his life for me. But he goes one step further, and this is what I love. It's almost as if at this point I can imagine him going, hey, um, religious guys, you, you got to step out of the way. I, I want to talk to everybody else who's gathered here. And he looks at them, and, um, and, and this is the way I think about it. Um, I moved to Denver four years ago, uh, maybe a little more than four years ago, and I bought a house. And if you look at the title, my name is on the title of that house. It's exclusively mine. It's uniquely mine. There's not another family. There's not another person in town who calls that their home. It's mine. 
And, um, and actually, Abraham Kuyper has this famous saying that says, Jesus looks at every square inch of the universe and he screams, it's mine. It's all mine. And the house is mine. And, um, and, and not only is it exclusively mine, but, but I am paying for it sacrificially. I promise you that. <laughs> I live in Denver, so I am paying on that mortgage. All right? But you know what? I don't have a relationship with my house. I don't, I don't, I don't like, my house and I don't talk back and forth. I don't lay in bed at night thinking about my house. Uh, my house serves my purposes. I don't ever just want to come up and hug my house. Um, I don't ever want to talk to my house unless I want to cuss at my house when it doesn't do the right things, you know, and I got to pay money for it. I don't have like a relationship with my house, but this is exactly then what Jesus finally could have walked away, but he comes in, and, um, and the thing that I want to say is that God speaks, so Jesus, it was enough to say that he was the good shepherd. It was enough to say that he would sacrifice, but he wants to take it a step further and he wants them to know, he goes, hey, there's one other thing you need to know about me when I'm the shepherd is um, I know my sheep and they know me. I know their voice and they know mine. And why is this significant? There's a New Testament scholar, Gary Burge, and, and he writes this. He says, the Middle Eastern shepherd is well known for having a personal devotion to his sheep. He talks to them and sings to them. Just as Arab shepherds today can separate personal sheep from larger flocks by using peculiar calls, so Jesus knows his own sheep. They can recognize his voice, and he leads them. Well, the, the people of the day knew that shepherds had this love relationship with their sheep. It's the reason I think that Jesus tells a story. seems crazy to us. Why in the world would I leave 99 sheep to go get one? Sorry, sucker, you're on your own. I'm keeping the 99. That's where the value is. But Jesus stands up and says, you know what God has got like? God, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And I believe that people in the culture would have said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Because he knows that sheep by name. That sheep, that, that's like a family pet. That sheep has a name. And this is consistent with scripture. The prophet Zephaniah, he says in Zephaniah 3.17 about our God, he says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior. Now get that picture, a mighty warrior. Now bring it back to I don't have it memorized, I'm sorry. I'm not as holy as Preston. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Now, I mean, how often do you think about your God singing over you? But this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is painting. So he's saying, I'm exclusive. I'm the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I sacrifice, but I want intimacy with you. I want to know you and I want you to know me. And this makes so much sense why for the first four centuries, one of the most famous paintings is of Jesus holding a little lamb. Because the early church was gripped with this thought that the God of the universe wants an actual relationship with me, an intimacy with me, a connection with me, that he comes down to be on my level, that he's not just king, but he's friend and counselor. This is incredible. And um, a a week ago, my wife and I were, um, were in the process of adopting an elementary age girl from Haiti. And so we have to take all these classes. And so we were in classes all weekend. And um, we were in a class on attachment because it's very hard often for uh, adopted children from other countries to, to attach. And so we were talking through that. And she made a really, really interesting point, the instructor. She said, your voice is one of the two things biologically that shares the most intimacy with another person. And, and she started talking about all the research they've done with parents and, and with um, children. 
And they said, you know, when you even you get like this big tough guy and he's like, goo, 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 you know, he's like baby talking the baby. Um, that's biologically hardwired into you. Uh, so even though I didn't want to touch a baby, hold a baby, anybody else's baby, when we had our first daughter, man, I was Googling all over the place. And I was looking her in the eyes and I was doing that silly baby talk stuff. And what research has found is that there's a bond that is occurring that her little brain is formed in a way that it connects us, that it attaches us. And so the thing that she was saying in the class is, although you might have a seven or eight-year-old come to your home, emotionally, she could be one, two, or three years old. And if you find yourself in these sort of silly, what feels silly, sort of baby talk games with her, that that's okay because it's biologically hardwired to connect you and to create intimacy. And so when Jesus says, you know his voice and he knows yours, He's tapping into your biology and saying, that's how intimate I want to be with you. This is what he wants. And the question is, do you want that? Because I gotta be honest, sometimes it's easier just to let him be king, but it's a little scarier to let him all the way in. It's a little scarier to let him be friend, to talk to him about secrets and about hurts. I'm just not sure what he's going to do with that. You know, I think one of the best ways to understand in the season you're at right now, your relationship with God is what does your prayer life look like? Is God mostly when you pray King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And by the way, that's amazing and awesome. And there's seasons of reverence and awe of who he is. But are there seasons where it just feels like he's so close? So close. That's what he wants for you. And of course, we don't have time to talk about all the ways that God speaks, but he speaks in so many ways. And if you're interested, we're, we're, we're going to do a, a conference in another month and a half on power and presence. Like, how do we get in touch with the voice of God and hear his voice and engage with him in life as he wants to use us? And, um, and so let me just end with this. What, what is our response? What's our response? Like if you become convinced, like the early church, the first four centuries, that the major, one of the major ways to see Jesus is as the good shepherd, what is your response? And, um, you know, as Jesus stood there and he said, I am the good shepherd, the immediate thing that would have dinged for anyone in that culture was Psalm 23. Psalm 23 to this day is the most quoted psalm. It's the most prayed psalm in the Jewish tradition Psalm 23 is like rooted at the core and the heart of the Jewish tradition and religion. And in Psalm 23, I just put it up here. I'm not going to read it all for you, but, but I just want you to look at that. And then, um, and I just want you to think about, I think when we understand Jesus is our shepherd and we as the sheep, when we get comfortable with that, a lot of the big questions in life that you're wrestling with get answered in that paradigm when you understand that. What do I mean? Um, verse one there, the Lord's my shepherd, I lack nothing. Really, in our culture, another version, I shall not want. Come on, I shall not want. That, that doesn't happen in our culture. Uh, you can throw up the other side that just has the list of things, and I'll just show them. I don't have to worry about my needs being met. Wouldn't it be revolutionary for you to live this way? Now, right now, half of you in your mind, you go, that's impossible, Corey. Really? Is it? I wonder. I don't have to worry about my needs being met. David said, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not be in want. 
I'm not, I'm not talking about living in utopia, but I'm talking about when I notice one, I just go, you know what? God's going to take care of me. Right now, some of you are wondering, like, God, are you going to meet that need? God, I, I need the bank account to be a certain way. I need the job to go a certain way. I need the partnership. I, I, you know, I need a partner in life. I need it. And God is saying, you don't got to worry. I got you. You don't have to live in, well, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd. You're the sheep. I got you. I'm going to take care of you. Verse two, you can rest. Some of you just grind and you grind and you grind and you never enter into seasons of rest. And what you're communicating is that he is not God. And what you're communicating is that you don't have a good shepherd. That's just the bottom line. That's just true. And so if you don't have regular rhythms of rest in your life, you're communicating that you don't have a shepherd. And it says that he longs for you to rest. He longs for you to delight. He loves it when you go to the mountains and play. He loves that. He wants you to rest. Of course, not during church time, but any other time. I, I have a guide and will be used for good purposes. Sometimes you've got to make big decisions in life. And especially when you're single, you don't have a partner. If, if you're single and you don't have great parents, oftentimes I talk to single people who just, they feel very confused. Like, how do I make decisions in life? Like if, if you're, you don't have a partner, you don't have good parents, and maybe you don't have a mentor, you feel really stuck, and that's true. What do I do? And Jesus says, I want to be your good shepherd. I've got good purposes for you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to bring people around you. I've got you. You don't have to be afraid of any negative circumstances in life, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Come on. What's the most negative circumstance in your life right now? It's probably not walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And even in that valley, God says, I want to be your shepherd. You don't have to fear negative circumstances. You can trust his discipline that it's for good. Some of you grew up in homes where discipline brought shame and embarrassment, and it did nothing to attach you to your, to your loved ones. And God says, if I discipline you, if you feel the spirit of conviction, it's because I love you and because it's good for you. You're favored and taken care of. They anointed the heads of kings. Jesus is saying, you're my sons and my daughters. You're precious. I anoint you. You belong to me in the royal house. And, and I love it. You know you belong and you know the end of the story. How helpful is, is that? So many of you have spent your life thinking that you're on the outside, not knowing how things were going to end, being nervous and anxious and afraid of all kinds of things. And, and Jesus says, you know how it ends. My girls right now, they love, um, if we get, I know it's a really good movie when there's all kinds of tension occurring. And my girls in the middle of the movie will be like, daddy, fast forward it and show us the final scene. And they want to see the final scene and then they want to rewind it and then come back and watch the rest of the movie. Why? Because they know the end of the story. It takes the tension out. It, it, it alleviates the anxiety. They're not afraid anymore of what's going to happen because they know the end of the story. And Jesus says, you know the end of the story. No matter what happens to you, worst case scenario happens to you, you know the end of the story. This is what it means to be the sheep when you have a shepherd. And so my prayer for us is that we could live all the way into being the sheep. You know that we're loved beyond anything we could ever imagine. Why don't you stand and let's respond. Here's what we want to do. We want to respond. I just believe that God has been speaking to you, not just in this room, but all day long. 
You may not have picked up on that or noticed that, but he might bring something to mind. There might be something in the service tonight that you just feel like he's interacting with you. And we just want to create space now to interact with him. And so um, we're going to do multiple things. We're going to worship. The team is up here. Uh, we're going to take communion. That's going to be in the back. I want to encourage you, to, if you're a follower of Jesus, to celebrate with communion. Um, and remember his body given for you and his blood spilled for you. And maybe you've never done this. I don't know if I've ever done this. Take communion tonight, imagining and picturing the shepherd laying down in the entry to the sheepfold. He lays down that he allows the lion to attack and to take him on behalf of the sheep. And you celebrate that Jesus did that for you. There might be something that you need to commit to this week around what it means to be a sheep or what it means to have a shepherd. Or you go, you know, I want to look at that more. I want, I want to study that more. I want to think about that more. That's great. And then, of course, we, we always spend time praying here at Discover. And, and I just had a few things that I thought we could pray for. Um, first of all, uh, this isn't on my list, but I had a picture of like, it's kind of weird, but if any of you have seen Lord of the Rings, Gandalf flies on the back of eagles um, at, at some point. Some of you know what that is. Anyway, I had a picture of just someone someone flying on the back of a bird and the Lord saying there's a f maybe a couple of you that walked in tonight who just life is like man you are so tired you are so tired like life is beating you down and the Lord said tonight I'm not going to be your good shepherd I'm going to be that bird you just hop on my back and I'm going to carry you for the next few weeks and so if that connects with you that was a picture in my mind but listen if you want to hear God speak more and, and you want a more intimate relationship with him, you go, Lord, I want to hear more and know more of your voice in the way that you know mine. We want to pray for you tonight that you would enter into a season of just connecting even deeper and hearing his voice clearer. So if you just say, I want more of that, we want to pray for you. There's something tonight that you want to turn loose of your affections. I'm just asking you for the next three weeks. If you go, my tendency is to numb out with and fill in the blank. Tonight, you don't even have to be so brave as to tell the person what it is, but would you step to the side and just ask for prayer and say, tonight, I'm just opening my hands and I'm laying it down. And by God's grace, I'm just going to move towards Jesus, the good shepherd of my soul, that all my affections for the next three weeks, I want to rest on him. I want to find life in him. And so we want to pray for that. And then, um, listen, if you're going through like hard, negative circumstances, it feels like the valley of the shadow of death or nothing that dramatic, but you, you know, you just find yourself like, God, if you would just show up and he's not showing up and, and the Lord would just remind you tonight that you're the sheep, we want to pray for you. It's good to be the sheep. Corey, someone, as they wrestle with faith, is saying, we learned about the dangers of imitations of faith. Is it possible to fake it till you make it? Is it possible to put up a front before God until we are able to live and believe more genuinely? Wow, that's a great question. I think that, um, that God knows our heart. And so although it may feel like you're faking it, any um, over and over in the scriptures, God is the one who moves towards us. And when someone responds with any kind of faith at all, even if you feel like that's faking it, like if you just go, God, I don't know if you're there, but if you're there, you know, it'd be great if you, and I'll do this. I'll take one step. He, he's the God that takes 99 steps when we take one. And so I would encourage you not to think of it as fake, not to think of it as imitation, as a fraud. Like God just honors your heart when you, when, when you say, I don't know, but I, I just want to take one step. 
Again, I, I just think that that's so true. He takes the 99 when you take the one. The, the story of the prodigal um, son is that he sits and watches. And, and when he sees the first step of his son, he runs out to get him. And um, so I would just encourage you actually to reframe that. And that, that God knows your heart and that God's not afraid of questions and wonderings and doubts. I mean, we're about to enter the season where we talk about doubting Thomas. Uh, which really isn't fair, you know, uh, where Thomas just said, I just need to see more. And what did Jesus do in that moment? Jesus showed him more. Jesus wasn't put off by his questions or his distance. Jesus said, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what you need that you can take the next step. Would you want to add to that? No, I think you said it really well. I, I think that was a, literally a perfect answer. <laughs> a plus. Now you're just being kind. No, it's great. Can we give Corey a round of applause for being here? Thank you so much. Such a great word. Yeah. Um, and so much to think about. I, I want you guys to know, as you wrestle with faith, we are a community that does that together. We don't want you to do life alone. 